Well, good morning. Um, this is the final sermon in our series of Psalm 139. So please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 139. We'll be looking at verses 13 all the way down to verse 24. But really, we're going to focus the majority of our efforts on verse 13 through 16. This is the fifth Sunday in the month. And so this is a bonus, if you look at it, a bonus Sunday. Um, so, you know, extra holiness in the month of August is how I term it. Um, at the last church I was at, we would have a, a Sunday night fellowship, you know, a time to get together. But these are strange times with COVID, you know, so we can't have a Sunday night uh, fellowship or anything like that. But it's the fifth Sunday in the month. Um, we could certainly enjoy this sort of providentially this extra Sunday in August together. Um, next week, we're going to start a series called The Work of the Holy Spirit in the Life of Jesus. Um, and I, I just wanted to take a look at the Holy Spirit and, and how it worked in the life of Jesus. And I'm always fascinated, actually, by how the Holy Spirit worked in the life of Jesus for this reason. If Jesus needed the power of the Holy Spirit in his life and his ministry, how much more do we? And, and how often do you and I think about the Holy Spirit in our life and the need for the Holy Spirit? Hey, we know that we can do it on our own, right? I mean, we could try at least, but we're going to be wholly unsuccessful. And Jesus was very intentional in having an awareness of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit on him and using him. And I just think if the church is going to fulfill its mission in the world, the church will need the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. And so to do that, we're going to look at that. That's going to take us up until November, and then we'll transition into our um, Christmas uh, season. So if you will, let's take our Bibles and uh, Psalm 139, verse 13. I'm going to read from verse 13 down to verse 24, so we see the entire context. Here now, the holy, precious, and inspired word of God. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your books were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And listen, listen now to verse 23 through 24 as it sums up this glorious psalm. Listen to what David is asking for and then listen to what 
Um, David says the purpose and the result of God's uh, presence, of God's omniscience, of God's omnipotence, what that has on his life. Verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, indeed, this is your word, and we are so thankful for it. We are thankful, Father, that your word brings us hope and strength that your word reminds us of who you are and your character and how that character is seen in every aspect of our lives and in your creation. Father, help us today. We need you. We need you to enliven our hearts and our minds. We need you to help us to see your beauty and your grace. We need you today to help us to be hearers and doers of your word. And so bless this time now. May you teach our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, As we've been going through this psalm, we've been looking at the attributes of God that naturally bubble up in this particular psalm, and they're discernible all the way through. We talked about it. If you look at verse 1 through 6, we have the omniscience of God, the fact that God knows all things, that he's able to search us, and the fact that he's able to know us. And then if we look at verse 7 through 12, we spent quite a bit of time studying the omnipresence of God. Where indeed shall we flee from God's spirit and his presence? Where can we go to escape his loving gaze? The fact that he's always with us and comfort us. And then we've looked, uh, we're going to look at verse 13 through 16 as we see the omnipotence of God, the fact that David transitions from the fact that God is always with us and the fact that, that his omniscience and his omnipresence is carried over in the fact that he knows us and was with us in the womb. But David takes it a step further and starts talking about God's omnipotence, the fact that the, the God of heaven, the most powerful being known to man, now forms us. He forms us even there. Now, when we talk about the omnipotence of God, I think it's important to establish what it is that we're talking about. The omnipotence of God doesn't mean that God can do whatever he wants, right? I've often heard uh, atheists and various people say, well, you know, if God is omnipotent, can can he create a rock too big for him to lift? And I'm like, well, that's a profound misunderstanding of what it means that God is omnipotent. It doesn't mean that God can do whatever he wants. In fact, Scripture tells us that God doesn't do whatever he wants. For instance, God cannot lie. He cannot be illogical. He cannot do something contrary to his will. No, the word omnipotence means that God can accomplish all that he desires or wills to do. Now, that's in stark contrast to us. We, we are very much aware of the fact that we cannot accomplish our will. And thank the Lord, because we don't always will that which is good. But on the flip side of that, our own, our own uh, lack 
of potency is seen in the fact that we don't have the ability to do even the good that we want to do. Paul in Romans 7 says that. And so as we come here today and we look at the omnipotence of God, I want you to see three things that I think are just so glorious and wonderful about this text. And here they are. Three truths that I want to share with you about God's omnipotence and how that is um, lived out in our lives. The first is this, that God is powerful yet personal. That's seen in verse 13 and 15 through 16. We're going to pull some of those together. God is powerful yet personal. The second is this, that God, God, um, God's power is worthy to be praised. That's what David is saying in verse number 14. God's power is worthy to be praised. And finally, the purpose of God's power. And we see the purpose of God's power flowing out of verse 17 all the way down to 24. But verse 23 and 24 specifically talk about the purpose of God's power. So it's the God is powerful yet personal. God's power is worthy of praise. And thirdly, the purpose of God's power. Let's take each one of these briefly and see how they apply to us. First of all, God is powerful yet personal. Notice what David says in verse number 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Take a moment and think about what David is saying here. David is talking about power in a way that you and I are not familiar with. Like when we think of power, we think of our ability or the ability of a being or a force to exert power or strength on a particular thing, to do something on a large scale, to do something on a grand scale. That's how we normally think of power. We think of exercising control in this grand and massive way. But David says something different. David says the power of God isn't seen by the fact that God has created the mountains or God has created the vast seas or God has created this, um, this expanse that is ever expanding known as space. That's not where we see the crown jewel of God's power. That God's power is actually seen in the formation of a tiny body in the womb. Think about that for a moment, that that the pinnacle expression of God's power is the fact that he forms a baby in the womb. And it's in that that we see the personal aspect of God, not just that he's tremendously powerful, but as he's also personal. Think for me for a moment or consider for a moment how the creation of human beings, how that reveals the power and the, personal, uh, and the personal nature of God. When God first created um, Adam, the Bible says, among, uh, apart from all of his other creation, the Bible said that he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. And then he breathed into his nostril the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And he entered into covenant with that thing that he formed. And then from that, we see God, uh, every, uh, you know, from that we see Eve being created, the fact that he put Adam to sleep, and then he cut a rib out of, out of Adam, and he formed Eve, and they too uh, sort of entered into covenant with each other, where, where Adam says, oh my goodness, this is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Um, keep in mind, this was the only woman that he's ever seen, but, but that's beside the point, right? He still gets points for saying, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. You're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And it's in that, this formation of this woman, we see a covenant relationship there. And 
then think of every success, successive human being that was made, that they were made in the womb of the woman. And even though the womb is in her body, the womb was actually created for someone else, namely a little baby. And it's that relationship between the woman and the baby over that nine-month period that shows the power of God, but also the personal relationship that God is forming between mother and child. And then as that baby is born, that baby is born into, at least this is by the plan of God, into this covenant home in which there's a mother and a father and they're loving one another and raising them up. And for a brief period of time, the baby is completely helpless. And some would say up until 18, but that's, again, besides the point. And, and there's, this, there's this beautiful relationship that's being formed there. Now, now, why do you think that David is using this illustration? Because, because he wants us to think not just from the scope of redemptive history, but, but if you think of the formation of a child, and then you think of how complex that process is, and along the way there are all these covenant relationships being established. David is saying God is not just powerful, but he's personal. And that even our creation was designed and meant in such a way that we are drawn into the presence of the Lord in a very powerful and real way. And notice, David even takes it a step further. Look at verse number 15 and 16. David says, God, even before I was born, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And then in verse number 16, he says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. David is saying, God, even before I was even created, you knew me. You saw my unformed substance. And then he says, the days that were formed for me. Now, you could, you could take that to mean uh, a ver uh, various amounts of things. David could even be talking about the formation of the baby in the womb or the entirety of his life, but it doesn't matter. David is saying, God, even before I was created, you knew the extent of my days. You had, you had marked those out. This is a sign of a God who's powerful yet personal. And by the way, let me say this. This is why we in the church believe in the value of life in the womb. But can I also say this is why we believe in the life and the value of a person outside of the womb. Listen, I, most of you that know me know that I'm not a political animal, right? I, I don't, like, I don't wave any flag. So, so I'm just, I'm just going to preach God's word here, Right? This text for the Christian demands that we care about life in the womb. Amen? But it also demands that we care about life outside of the womb. And, and the reality is that, that there are so many people, they either are fixated on life in the womb or they're fixated on life outside of the womb. And that shows the brokenness of our society. It shows that we can never get the gospel right in and of ourselves. And this is why we need the teachings of Holy Scripture, because David is saying, 
God, you knew me and you powerfully formed me in the womb, but you knew me and you powerfully uh, meted out my days. And why, why is David saying this? Because David understands, David is using this as a metaphor that, that God wants to have a personal relationship with everyone, whether they're in the womb or outside of the womb. And this is why you and I need to care about what happens in our society to life. Whether that life is of a, of a poor uh, person, right, that is in need of care and benevolence, whether it's the death of uh, black and brown people in our society, regardless of where we see injustice, we should care about that life. I, you know, God takes life seriously, and, and the thing that breaks me in half sometimes is that when we talk about these issues, there's such a lack of, of caring for life. Like, lay politics aside for a moment, and can we just come to a place where we value life? Look at the exaltation of life that David is giving us in this text to say, God, you, you formed every aspect of me, and, and whether, you, whether you're white or you're black or you're Asian, it doesn't matter. Every, every life matters to God to the extent that he, he has created them uniquely to be in covenant with them. And because of that, we as his people should feel the same way. This isn't a Republican thing. This isn't a Democratic thing. This is a gospel thing. And so it should grieve us and wound us that our society has such little value for life. And all of you inside here today, please search your heart and mind and let's just get to a place where we can start valuing life. And let's pursue in our efforts the flourishing of all mankind. And never seek to devalue that or just scoff it off as if it doesn't matter. Because it matters to God. The word of God says that even David's unfortunate substance was known to God. And so we see that God is powerful yet personal. Notice the second thing for me, please. Notice that God isn't just powerful and personal. But God's power is worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be praised. Notice with me in verse number 14. David says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. Now, David is praising God for what? Well, David is praising God because of the fact that God has made him, right? And the word made there has the idea of set apart. And so this text could actually read... David says, I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully set apart. Now, now, David is no stranger to praising God for his creation. If you go to Psalm 8, David says, God, I praise you because your glory can be seen in the heavens. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and all aspects of God's creation is designed to give him glory. But David is saying, man is uniquely set aside. Man is uniquely created and set aside to give 
Glory to God, to worship God. That's what David is saying here, that he praises God because he is fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. You know, that last bit, that my soul knows it very well, man, that really struck my heart for this reason. There are so many people in our world, so many people that you interact with on a regular basis, they don't understand that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. Remember, I worked at a, at a coffee shop. Um, I was a barista. Any baristas in here? Um, you know, it's a cult. You know, we're, we're a part of a club, you know? Like, when we get together, we talk shop. And, um, and so, you know, I was a barista for, for several years when I was in seminary, and there was a young lady that would come through every time, and I still remember her order. She ordered a 24-ounce um, non-fat mocha latte, extra hot, four shots. It was every day. And it just stuck. And, and it got to a place that even when I saw her car coming, I started making it. And, you know, she would, she, like, this is the pinnacle of being a barista. Let me nerd out for a moment. Like, when I saw her coming, like, she would come and she would drive around. And as she would come, I'd just hand her, hand her the cup. And she would be, like, so impressed. And so over, over the months, I started knowing, noticing something. She, she was getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And, and it got to the point where it, it was, like, noticeable. And, no, I, she didn't need to lose weight. But, but she had gotten to a point where she was, she was so emaciated, you could actually see her skull. Like, it, you know... I don't want to be insensitive here, but, but she almost looked like, like the pictures you saw of those in Auschwitz, you know, that had been depraved of food and water. I mean, she just looked really, really bad. And we, we had a ministry um, there, even though we were, you know, we were a business, we would often pray for people and, and talk to people. And so I, I told my coworker, I said, hey, um, this young lady, I can't remember her name right now. I remember her drink, but I can't remember her name. I said, hey, um, I said, hey, do you know what's going on with her? Like, she comes by every day. She gets this drink every day. But she's just, like, so emaciated. And she's like, yeah, Dennis, we really need to pray for her. Because a friend of hers told me that, that she, she just, she really wants to look like a supermodel. And that she's really struggling with the way she looks and... And so in an effort to do that, the drink that we give her is the only sustenance she has every day. I just couldn't believe that, right? The only substance, sustenance this young lady had was this 24-ounce, sugar-free, skim milk mocha latte with four shots. Why? Because she didn't understand that she was fearfully and wonderfully made. And God loved her exactly the way she was. And can I tell you, she's not the only one that feels like that. There have been times in my life that I was not satisfied with the way God made me. And I wanted to be someone else. I wish I was someone else. And I remember the bondage I felt for not understanding the power of this verse, that God had made me uniquely and formed me and set me aside in the exact form I was 
as a black Bahamian boy, right? That, that God had formed me uniquely, and I didn't need to be like anybody else. I didn't need to wish like I was anyone else because I was uniquely made and set apart to give God glory exactly the way I was. And when we don't understand that, and when we put pressure on other people to conform to some image that we have in our mind of what they should be or what they should look like or the way they should act, that has destructive consequences. Because in this young lady's life, she was a beautiful young lady, not as beautiful as my wife, but, but a beautiful young lady who thought she needed to be something else. And let me tell you, for those of you that are in here, you don't have to desire to be like someone else. You don't have to wish like you were someone else. You don't have to desire to have someone else's life. God has created you exactly the way you are to bring him the maximum amount of glory. And the power in this passage is David realizes that and he says, God, I praise you. Why? Because I am fearfully, wonderfully made. And this is not an intellectual exercise for me. Why? My soul knows it very well. My soul knows it very well. And why, and why, why is it that, that David is saying, God, you know, I, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What's, what's the goal of, of being made? What's, what's, what's the end product here? Well, David says the end product here is that you and I may worship God. David is... David is modeling what the end product of us realizing that we are uniquely created for God is to give him praise. Listen to these verses in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences excellencies, I can't talk right now, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice Roman, uh, Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What is David saying? David is saying the goal of us being created is that we might be a unique worshiper of God. This, this, is the, this is the grand scheme of your creation so that you can be a unique worshiper of God. Now, so many of us approach the Bible as if, if this book, which is it's the greatest book on the world, but, but as we read it and as we interact with it, there seems to be a distance between us and the God of this book. Let me explain it this way. I, I've quoted C.S. Lewis from this pulpit many a times, and it's because, uh, not because he bears my name, which is a slight different spelling, but um, I, the reason why I quote C.S. Lewis is because C.S. Lewis has had a powerful impact on my heart, right? He really has. Um, his writings have changed my thinking. His writings have helped me to understand the gospel. But here's the thing um, that, that I wish, even more than C.S. Lewis' writings, I really wish I had an opportunity to meet C.S. Lewis. You know, to shake his hand, give him a hug, 
maybe to spend time with him and communicate to him how thankful I am that God has used him to write these works that has just impacted my life. But I can't. I can't have a relationship with C.S. Lewis, right? That, that ship has sailed. And I think sometimes that's how we approach the Bible. We, we look at the Bible and we see and we, we say, okay, these words are helpful. They help me live my life a particular way. They, they help me think about life a particular way, and that's awesome. But, but God offers something else. He not, offer, he not only offers his word, but he offers a relationship through the power of his spirit. And we now can enter into that relationship and not only understand that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, but we get to respond to the God that tells us we are fearfully and wonderfully made through worship. Through worship. Notice the final thing, and it's this, the purpose of God's power. What's the purpose of God's power? Well, verse 17 through 24 tells us the purpose of God's power, right? David says, look, my frame was not hidden from you. Your your eyes saw my unformed substance. You number my days. And David is just completely in awe of God. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. David is blown away at the fact that God himself has all of these thoughts that are catered and curated toward us, his people. And and why is that the case? Why, Why is... The, the omniscience, and notice how David brings to bear all of these attributes of God's. God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and then his um, omnipotence. And he forces us now in verse 20, 23 and 24 to see the blessing and the beauty of that. David says, God, all of your attributes, bring them to bear on my life. Search me, he says, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. David is asking us or asking God for sort of a spiritual exam in which God is thoroughly looking and managing and dealing with his heart. Why? So that God can root out the grievous way in him. And what's the purpose of that? Notice at the end of verse 24, that we might be led in the way of everlasting. Now, whenever you see the word way in the Bible or the way in the Bible, it's talking about the fact that you and I have this sort of choice, right? There's a choice between ways in which we should go down. And it's, it's really seen in Psalm 1, verse 6, where it says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Or elsewhere in Psalm 23, 3, it says, We are led down paths of righteousness. These are all uh, decisions that you and I have to make. Right? Are we going to go down to the path of righteousness, or are we going to go down the path of unrighteousness? But notice what David is saying here. He's asking God to take away that choice from him because he knows he can't choose the good. He says, God, lead me. You drag me down the path of righteousness, the way of everlasting. You do that for me because I'm incapable of doing it for myself. And beloved, if you look at the age and the time we're in, we are faced with the reality that we don't have the ability to do the right thing. We don't have the ability to comfort ourselves. We don't have the ability to hope for ourselves. We must ask God to lead us down the way of everlasting. 
Now, what does the ever way of everlasting look like? Well, I love what one commentator says. He says, to commit ourselves to God through pledges and promises, to depend on God through petition and expressions of acceptance, to seek comfort in God through lament and complaint, to find mercy from God through confession and repentance, to gain wisdom and perspective from God through meditation, remembrance, and reflection. All of those things are the way of everlasting. And now we begin to understand why Jesus, when he came to earth, said, I am the what? I am the way. I am the way. It is through Christ in the here and now that you and I can be led in that way, that you and I are carried in that way. In fact, in the New Testament, if you look at the book of Acts, Christians, before they were called Christians, they were called the way. Why? Because it was understood that the way of faith was what we were, we were to pursue. And so Jesus, by saying that he was the way, said that his power is manifested in us, that we can endure trials, that we can overcome sin, that when we express joy in the midst of depression, that we can persevere amidst discouragement, that when we exercise, we can exercise faith in the midst of hopelessness, and we can exhibit strength in the midst of our weakness. That's the power of God in you. To him be all glory and praise. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a powerful wonderful God, and this is seen in every aspect of our life, that we as your people are fearfully and wonderfully made. We were uniquely designed as an individual to give glory to you. May we rest in that. May we in our weakness draw from your power today and every day. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Please stand for